Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. Coming up, infectious disease expert Dr. Suman Chakrabarty is going to help make sense of two COVID-related stories. And Amazon and eBay have been called out for selling QAnon products. We'll talk about what QAnon is and why the FBI thinks they're a potential danger. Thursday, September the 3rd, moving into the last long weekend of the summer, the Labor Day long weekend. That is traditionally a weekend where if you're not out of Dodge heading up to the cottage, you've earmarked that as the weekend that you head to the Canadian National Exhibition. You take your kids there. You know, uh, everybody has a different sort of uh, tradition that they like to fulfill at the X, whether it's the air show or, you know, getting in to try the wacky foods or riding the rides. But this year, COVID closed the CNE. They went online virtually and we talked about that. But there's a very real possibility that the CNE may not come back next year or any other year, they are facing a permanent closure. Uh, we're joined now by the CNE Executive Director, Daryl Brown. Daryl, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kelly. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay. I, I, this is really concerning news when it comes to the fate of this. You know, it's an annual tradition in Toronto. Let's talk about the history of the fair before we get to um, what kind of dire straits you're in. How long sure. has a hit, the uh, CNE been going on uh, for? And maybe give us some stats on how many people attend each year. Well, it's been going on since 1879. And to give you an idea just how many people have attended since then, uh, we're at almost a quarter of a billion people uh, that have come in to the fair over those years. There's only one time prior to this year that we canceled the course, and that was during the Second World War. Uh, you know, the attendance has varied depending on circumstances. When we had a lot of events that were going on, let's say in the 1970s, 1980s, you could get upwards of 3 million people attending the fair. Uh, now we uh, we get uh, pretty much between 1.4 and 1.6 million people per year. But to put that in perspective, you know, if you take, the, for example, the Pan Am Games in 2015, lots of hoopla, but we outdrew the Pan Am Games by 100,000 people. And I think what's unique about the CNE is it appeals across classes and, uh, and appeals across income groups. Uh, we've got uh, a bit of everybody here. Why is this different than the closing of, of the acts during the Second World War? Why are you worried that this will this closure because of COVID will lead to a permanent closure of the acts? Sure. Well, first of all, I want to say that we will be there in 2021. Uh, that's assuming that we've managed to deal with the COVID issues and uh, and there's a vaccine available. We've we've arranged financing that's going to get us through to, to 2021. But a lot of people don't realize we're a financially independent organization. We don't rely on government funding. We have to draw enough revenue to pay for our costs year-round and also to pay for the pre-production costs for the next year's CNE. So uh, when we have a, a situation where, for example, this year we would have we projected 35.9 million in revenue, it's dropped by uh, 95 percent. We we are seeking alternative revenue sources, but uh, if we can't stage the fair, then we don't have the funds to to pay our staff and to move forward with the planning of the next year's fair. So I think we're, we're good for 2021, barring uh, that COVID bubble persisting. But the issue then is what happens after that, because the financing that we've obtained is a one-year loan, and that has to be repaid after the fair. And so we're going to be in the same situation next fall 
that we would be in now without financing, right? Uh, but uh, we're we're obtaining this financing through uh, a credit availability program that's uh, COVID-related, that's federally backed, and we should be able to renew that for 2022 because it provides for a one-year renewal. But beyond that, then uh, there there won't be that program in place. So, we're, uh, so I think yeah, we're know, speaking with the, this... onward, we're probably in, in trouble. We're speaking with the CNE Executive Director, Daryl Brown. Daryl, um, you were talking earlier on about the fact that the government doesn't uh, give you money. Where do you get the revenue for the X beyond gates? Like, it can't be through admission well, prices. What are your, where does the CNE get its revenue from? Well, there are a number of areas. First of all, we have a, a number of sponsors that pay sponsorship fees during during the course of uh, the, the X, and we also have vendors, exhibitors, concessionaires, and some of the uh, terms of those deals, we take a percentage of uh, what's what they take in as, as income as well. Uh, so it's it's from a variety of sources, uh, you know, sponsorship, gate admissions, uh, parking. Uh, and and then the uh, the vendor and exhibitor fees. Presumably in 2023, if all goes well, all these people will be back. So why wouldn't you have enough revenue to continue on? Where is the problem? Well, our margins are, are pretty tight. In a good year, we might come out with a net income of, uh, you know, one to two million dollars. Um, in a bad year, if you get hit with bad weather, we could be running at a loss. So we need a buffer, and it would take us. We estimate, um, assuming that you know we'd have a typical CNE attendance and revenue stream, it would take us three to four years to get back to positive because we've lost that six million dollars this year. So it's not a question of us not being viable. And I think the other point to emphasize is you have to measure this against what the economic impact is of, of the fair itself. You know, okay, break that down for us. Sure. 21% of the people that come into this fair come from outside of the GTA, and they spend in the city, not not counting what they spend at the fair, uh, around $32 million. The economic impact total to the city is $93 million, and to the province is $128 million. So when you when you weigh, you know, providing a safeguard of replenishing that six million dollars we lost versus what the economic benefits are just for one year uh, i think that's a staggering comparison and it's it's kind of a no-brainer that there should be some support coming okay so you're asking uh the governments to step in which which governments are you asking to step in to help save the cne well we've we have taken advantage of two programs federally and that's the wage subsidy program which has allowed us to keep staff on rather than lay them off although some people have lost as much as 60 percent of their income uh the way the wage wage subsidy works that program ends in december uh and as i mentioned earlier we've got this uh credit availability program that we're getting the financing through which is COVID related so the feds have stepped up we haven't uh, been successful to date in obtaining anything from the province. We've had uh, ongoing discussions with representatives from the Ministry of Finance and, uh, of course, tourism. Uh, and because we're an agricultural society, there's also a tie to AMAFA, the Ministry of Agriculture. Uh, so we're hopeful that uh, as uh, the provincial government wades through the submissions that have been provided to their Standing Committee on Finance and Economic Affairs, they might come up with some programming, but there's been really no new money that's been put forward by the province to date. The other uh, thing that I think is often misunderstood is that we don't own 
uh, buildings on the grounds of X Place. We rent and lease the facilities and also the right to use that 192 acres for the C&E period. So we pay over well over $4 million to uh, X Place for use of those facilities. And then on top of that, we pay for services. So, for example, last year, we paid over $9 million to X Place, uh, including the, the lease rentals, the license fee to use, uh, the 192 acres and the services that they provide. So, you know, we recognize the financial constraints that certainly the city is under now, uh, but w- we are engaged in discussions with X, Pla- X Place about accommodating, perhaps deferring, or maybe providing some direct relief on some of those fees to allow us to, again, accumulate sufficient reserves to have some stability. I don't think a lot of people were aware. I certainly wasn't aware that the CNE had to lease the space there and the buildings. Let's talk about the fact that they you are on prime Lakeshore real estate. I saw that yeah. Hotel X go up and I thought, well, how is that possible? I mean, how is a hotel being built on the exhibition grounds? Uh, and then I didn't investigate it further. But is there a fear that, you know, after COVID, that the city will be looking at exhibition grounds and thinking, you know what, we need money, we need money bad. And maybe we're going to start to chop it up and uh, and hand it out to developers and sell it off at the highest bidder. Well, I think that the, there's there's no question that there's going to be redevelopment. And, you know, it's always been dynamic. And we've always had to make adjustments. So, you know, be it the demolition of the old stadium, the construction of a new stadium, the construction of the first phase of where Hotel X is. And there was this contemplation, of course, of that uh, next phase now in the eSports Stadium. So we're, we're always dynamically adjusting our footprint. But what's absolutely essential to us is to be able to have that traffic flow the pedestrian traffic flow east-west, because that's really the bread and butter of how the exhibition operates. So city planners have been putting their heads together in terms of what kinds of redevelopment uh, could take place at X, X Place. We've been monitoring that. I think there's a real risk with the financial constraints facing the city that they'll be looking for private financing. And then, of course, the trade-offs come into play because anybody in the private sector is going to want to have something that demonstrates a revenue stream to pay for any development costs. So we're monitoring it, and we'll certainly be participating in, in the discussions. I, I think and the other thing that, to keep in mind is, you know, we've got the World Cup in a few years coming into town and there will have to be some, I think, redevelopment on site to accommodate the requirements that FIFA would look for. So uh, it's something that people have to be aware of. Uh, I think first and foremost, this is public space and um, we want to be able to preserve that for the benefit of the community. So whatever redevelopment proposals come in, it's going to be have to, uh, you know, I think critically be examined. And we are certainly going to advocate for our needs uh, as uh, as the CNE. Beyond the CNE's economic impact to the city, and it's a, it's a good one, and to the province, give us your best argument, Daryl, on why that CNE should still exist into the future. W- what is the importance of it? Well, I, well, there's such a strong sentiment uh, for those people that have been in the city. I mean, many, many people worked at the CNE. 
some continue to work at the C&E. They have those memories from when they were kids going as a family, and they continue to come. So there's that sentimentality. That's 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 one side of this that continues to be there. Uh, and as I, I think I mentioned previously, what what we see is this is an event that that attracts uh, all income groups across the sphere and all age groups. We're almost evenly distributed from teenage to seniors and from low income to high income. And there's very few events that you can point to that has that kind of appeal, broad-based. Uh, so I think there's ample justification to continue to uh, promote and uh, and hold the CNE because it's a very valued and cherished, uh, iconic event in this city. All right, let's get to some uh, COVID news, shall we? Using the Summit supercomputer in Tennessee, this is like I think it's the second fastest, strongest. A supercomputer on the globe, researchers analyzed billions of genetic data points from the lung cells of nine COVID-19 patients. And seven days later, in only a week, Summit spat out um, some results that may have answered a key question about the coronavirus. How was it able to attack the body in so many different ways? You know, we, we've been hearing about the respiratory system. Uh, we've been hearing about the cardiac system. We've been hearing about uh, COVID toes and different symptoms, loss of smell. Uh, loss of taste. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty is an infectious disease specialist at Trillium Health Partners. You've heard him on the show before, and he's back again now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I'm just hoping you can make sense of some of these stories for us. So for months now, scientists have been operating on another theory based on cytokine storms. Can you refresh our memory on that? Yeah, so with uh, COVID-19, we actually see a phenomenon that's actually not unique to COVID-19. We see this with many other types of infections. The long and short of it is you have an infection that then comes to the body. Your immune system then is activated to try to attack and get rid of the, the invader. But sometimes what can happen, for whatever reason, this could be because of it's stimulated too much, it turns on too high, or it can't turn off properly. The immune system ends up not only getting rid of the virus, but it can cause lots of problems around the body. This can mean inflammation of the heart, you can get leaky lungs, you can get bleeding, and this is something that we see quite commonly in different infections. Uh, with COVID-19, it's quite prominent in many people, and this is part of the reason why it was, uh, you know, compelling from the start uh, with all these uh, strange manifestations. Okay, so what's the new hypothesis? So the new hypothesis is actually not necessarily all that different. So bradykinins are a special type of inflammatory molecule that uh, help with the immune system in terms of tracking uh, to a certain part of uh, where the infection is and trying to help the, uh, coordinate the immune response to get rid of it. And what we're seeing is that, uh, what we're seeing clinically is now kind of starting to slowly come out is that people are getting really, really high levels of inflammation all around the body and it can really affect especially blood vessels. We have blood vessels, obviously, in every single part of our body, and that's why that explains why we see, for example, strokes. We see people with clots in the lung, heart damage. You see people with nerve damage, and this is now starting to explain why we're seeing this is because the vessels are getting inflamed. Okay, so uh, bradykinins, they, they are basically going into overdrive just like uh, cytokines did. Is that what's going on? It, it, it's similar to that. So basically what's producing, bradykinins are just a, a single part of this, this really complicated coordinated response. And yeah, we're finding in that uh, supercomputer study that, look, we're seeing a lot of bradykinins in this area. What that's really telling us is that the milieu of inflammation is very, very high and out of control. 
the Brady Kynans being there um, is kind of interesting, but it's just kind of pointing towards the same fact that we see with a lot of other systemic infections, is that the immune system is activated way out of control. It's not turning off properly, and that's part of the reason why we see all these uh, manifestations. Okay, so what is a bradykinin? A bradykinin. I'm just, uh, hey, this is a new word for me. I'm just learning about this now. <laughs> yeah, so bradykinins are, just, uh, one of the, it's the, the best way to put it, it's an inflammatory molecule that's part of the immune system. So let's say when the immune system is activated, it has all sorts of signaling molecules. It can kind of say, okay, look, you, use, you go here to turn on the system. You turn here to perpetuate the response. You go here to kind of bring down the response. And bradykinins kind of work in that uh, milieu to help to regulate how the immune system is going to activate and how it turns off. And we see okay. that it can dysfunction in, you know, infections. We see it uh, having problems in allergies. We see it having problems in, uh, in people that have autoimmune illnesses. So they kind of has that kind of immune dysregulation um, flavor. And bradykinins are just part of that immune response. And what I think is that, yes, we are seeing that they are elevated in levels in the supercomputer study, but it does not necessarily mean that that's what's causing the problem. It's just more hmm. of an epiphenomenon. Okay, but does it not allow us to go, okay, well, let's turn it off. Let's stop them from getting into overdrive so we don't have this inflammation that the body, you know, that we have to deal with that is adding to complications. Is that uh, one way to, to, you know, try and, I guess, slow down or stop or minimize the effects of COVID-19? Absolutely. And that's part of the things that we've done. Even though we didn't specifically know bradykinins, let's say back in uh, you know, April and May, what we were using was, you maybe heard about the steroid study. Steroids are a type of drug that can dampen the immune response. And it seems a bit off. Why would you dampen the immune response if you're trying to fight an infection? But in this situation, COVID-19 was shown in severe cases where the immune system was way too activated. And steroids show that, look, if we dampen it a bit, we can help people uh, get better faster and, and not die from COVID. And that's uh, kind of going along with what you're saying. You're, you're kind of stopping that inflammatory process and helping patients. Suman, I got to tell you, you are giving your friend Isaac Bogosh a run for his money this morning because your ability to pivot between stories and link them together is brilliant. Yesterday, the World Health Organization updated its advice on COVID-19 treatments to include steroids based on analysis on seven trials. So I'd love for you to expand on this. Can you? Absolutely. And you can see how these two things are kind of connected, right? Because on the first part with the bradykinins, that's causing inflammation. And then the steroids, we know, are a, a very potent anti-inflammatory. So when we were trying all these studies, this was the one that showed, look, this is actually going to work. We've used it a couple of times in my own center, and we, we've seen that, yeah, it works and has a lot of promising data from Brazil, from the States, uh, even some studies that were done in China. So I think this is something that gives us at least one weapon against COVID-19. Okay, this is not going to be used, though, for anything other than severe cases. What's the risk in using steroids if you're not dealing with a se severe case of COVID? Yeah, so I guess with uh, the doses that we're generally using, it's very, very short. We're talking like six, seven days, right? So in that situation, there's not really a lot of risk. It just doesn't really do much. But steroids can have side effects. You know, they can cause uh, people to get a little bit loopy. We call it psychosis. They can put your blood sugars up. They can make your uh, blood pressure go up. So generally, we only use these drugs in the severe situations. And it makes sense because we're thinking that the people that get very sick from COVID are ones who are having kind of infl inflammation out of control that's damaging parts of the body.
Okay, we are always talking about a second wave. We've heard from the government. They are saying it is now inevitable that we will be uh, getting a second wave. We just don't know what it's going to look like. Should Canada start stockpiling steroids in the case of a second wave? And how readily available are they? Yeah, this is the, the, the beauty of it is steroids are actually a very cheap and very readily available drug. We use these all the time. Uh, dexamethasone, for example, it's used in non-infectious situations as well, often in neurosurgery where they're trying to bring down swelling in the brain. This has been available since the 1960s. We have tons of it. So there's likely no need to stockpile it. And the amounts that we'd be using for COVID are actually relatively small, you know, only going for like, you know, something like seven to 10 days. All right. Well, this this was based on a study that took three months um, in, you know, to to compile and to look at here. Um, People are questioning the speed of research, some with distrust. We opened up the phone lines the other day and I found this myself. Can you address how we're able to speed up research without sacrificing quality during this uh, pandemic? Yeah, and you know, uh, that's a very good point. And I have seen a lot of things that have, you know, for example, um, studies that are being uh, published uh, before they've actually gone through the rigorous peer review process. We've seen one thing that really bothers me is when studies are being presented at press conferences that are non-scientific. And then, of course, we've seen politicians talk about this thing. But I'll say one thing, that we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater because there has been some good, rigorous research. And part of the reason for that is there's such a plentiful amount of patients that that we can put into these trials. Usually in other types of trials, you have to take, sometimes it takes two years to amass the amount of patients you need. So there is some good stuff here, and uh, the steroid studies are one of them. All right. Well, I appreciate your time as always, Dr. Chakrabarty. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Take care. Have a great day. All right. That is Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, infectious disease specialist at Trillium Health Partners, giving us the latest on some of the headline-making COVID stories. All right. I uh, thought we'd better get to the bottom of this. I was reading a story yesterday, and the CBC reporter searched for QAnon on Amazon's Canadian retail site on Tuesday, and it returned more than 6,000 results, including T-shirts, hats, stickers. They did the same thing on eBay and got 15,000-plus results. Um, This could be problematic. Here to talk about why, Dr. Allison Meek, a history professor whose focus includes cults and conspiracy theories. Dr. Meek, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I think we better start off first with educating people on exactly what or who QAnon are. Uh, We know more about what. We actually don't know the who. Uh, So QAnon first emerged on an internet uh, website back in October uh, 2017. And the first post that it put out was that Hillary Clinton was about to be arrested. Um, And it sort of took off from there. So we don't actually know who is behind it, whether or not it was a joke, whether or not it was serious. But what it has morphed into, evolved into, is this conspiracy theory, this belief that there is a deep state, uh, a worldwide cabal uh, controlled by Satanists, controlled by pedophiles, that is out to take over the world and that Donald Trump is their hero and he's the one who is going to uncover uh, and and put into jail all of those that are somehow connected to this massive ring. And so obviously the the bad guys these days are Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Tom Hanks has been mentioned, Oprah Winfrey has been mentioned. And so that's really what QAnon uh, stands for today. 
Well, it's so over the top. You would wonder why it would warrant the FBI designating QAnon as a domestic terror threat. I mean, it doesn't sound like anything any right-minded person would believe in. Why did they? I think what uh, what I look at when I look at conspiracy theories and, and, and other academics is that what this is tapping into initially was very much a hatred of Hillary Clinton. Um, you see that with the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, which overlaps a great deal uh, with, with QAnon. Uh, I think people are angry with what they see the federal government and globalism and uh, macroeconomics doing. And so this is something for them to hold on to. I also think for others, conspiracy theories, regardless of what it is, provides a community. It provides a sense on the flip side that people that believe in this are, are really, they're special in, in, in the best way, that they can uncover this secret, that they can find evidence for this wrongdoing. They're the real patriots that are standing up against the evil government uh, compared to the rest of us they refer to as sheeple, that they refer to us as, as apathetic and not thinking through and being willing to just accept the news that's coming out of the mainstream media or the lamestream media, as Trump refers to it. You spoke about the community here, this QAnon community. It's establishing a presence, uh, you know, behind Trump as at the campaigns. Uh, mm-hmm. How big is the presence through uh, just even showing themselves wearing the QAnon products? It, it's huge and it's growing. And that's my fear of it. So there was a poll that came out uh, on Wednesday um, that showed that 56% of Republicans in the U.S. that they polled believe that QAnon is either true or partly true. So this is growing, that we have politicians that are tweeting this out in the U.S. Even Trump has tweeted this stuff out. So it's becoming normalized. And, and that's my concern with, with uh, groups like eBay or, or online retailers like eBay or Amazon who are selling these T-shirts, these baby onesies, not understanding that there's a real danger. And, of course, the vast majority of people that believe in this are not violent. But all conspiracy theories take is five, six, seven people or individuals who do believe it, who are going to go after those that they believe are the bad guys. Um, So a couple of years ago, there was a young man called Edgar Welch, who showed up at the pizzeria at the heart of the Pizzagate conspiracy theory with an assault rifle, uh, mm-hmm. trying to find the, the kids that were somehow locked in the basement, even though the restaurant doesn't even have a basement. That's the fear. And the FBI has found four other cases, violent terrorist cases that they have linked directly to QAnon. That's the fear that, that I see with, with this ideology. Okay, so if the FBI has designated them a d- domestic terror threat, why would Amazon and eBay allow them to sell products on their uh, e-commerce platforms? I know that Shopify has taken down all the merchandise. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think eBay and the others are starting to do it because initially if they just see that somebody's posting a T-shirt that has a Q on it, right, they're, they're not going to think anything of it. And, and I think, again, the more of us that can get this information out that know, in fact, this is dangerous – that's where you're going to start to see changes. So Twitter is now going after these accounts, uh, Facebook and all the rest of it. And it's not a First Amendment issue. Uh, first, the First Amendment, the U.S. actually says that Congress shall pass no laws. These are private companies. So they absolutely have a right to police what, what is on their websites. Is it? I, I thought about this before booking you, and I'm so happy that you decided to be on our show. But um, is it okay. dangerous talking about QAnon, giving them press? Is it dangerous or is it the right thing to do? Um, 
I'm of the mindset it of it is it is of the right thing to do, um, and this question comes up constantly in the class that I, I teach on conspiracy theories because I talk about Holocaust denial and Sandy Hook and all the rest of it. I think we have to be very careful about what we say, but I have a fear when these things go underground, when we don't know what's going on. Equally, again, I, I do believe the vast majority of people that are interested in this or get swept up in this don't fully understand and they're not violent. And and I do believe if we have conversations with them, if we're able to talk to them and say, do you understand, you know, is this a Russian bot? It, it's the same thing for me talking about the anti-vaxxer conspiracy theories or the, the anti-mask conspiracy theories. We have to have a dialogue. And I think we live in a society that it, we, we are in our tribes and nobody's actually talking to each other. We don't denigrate. We don't go after people and call them stupid or tinfoil hats. You try to understand where are you coming from? Why do you believe this? And have you looked at it from this perspective? So no, I I actually think it's really important that we have the conversations. I think facts matter. I think context matters. I think expertise matters. And and it's important that we have these conversations. Are there signs that you can point to that that can help debunk conspiracy theories if you're having these conversations with people? Because I do it on a daily basis here. I always have people calling me on on scientific facts saying, well, that's not fact and this is fact. And we go back and forth until I hang up on them and then they email me. Yes. Um, I think we've all have those family members. I have students that come in almost in tears because they're trying to hide up these conversations with their families. I think the best thing to do is to ask them, um, where are you getting this information from? So is it your cousin's neighbor's mailman's Facebook posts that you're getting this from? Who's actually pushing it? Are they trying to sell you something? Are they the grifters? Which scientific study are they trying to show you? And absolutely, there are people that are so far down the rabbit hole, you're not going to be able to convince them. But I think if we just keep at it gently, if we keep at it saying, yes, but, I think you are going to be able to have that conversation. It's exhausting. Um, There are certainly, you know, there are death threats. There's violence that has come out of it. The number of public health officials in the U.S. that have quit because they're being harassed by by the the conspiracy theories is, is a real public crisis. But I think we can't not do it. Dr. Meek, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much. Really informative stuff. Thanks a lot. Take care. Have a fantastic day. Dr. Allison Meek is a history professor who focuses on uh, conspiracy theories and, you know, gave us some little pointers there. I think it's interesting. Well, thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you want to listen to the show live, you can at 640toronto.com or you can find us at 640 Toronto on your AM radio. We're live every day from nine till noon. Cheers.